Hey, Rockheads, it's time again for NDC, an incredible developer conference held annually in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will both be there, of course, but check out this all-star lineup. Troy Hunt, Rob Eisenberg, Scott Allen, Oren Eni, Michelle Bustamante, Damian Edwards, Brock Allen, Dominic Beyer, and many more. Register before March 11th at ndc-oslo.com and save up to $350. That's 3,000 kroner for you Norwegians. NDC, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1263, with guests Michelle Rubustamante, Mark Rendell, and Ben Hall. Recorded Thursday, January 14th, 2016. London, it's dot net rocks. Yeah. <laughs> was that your beating with a chair motion? That was my is that beating what it is? with a chair motion. Okay. I'm just making sure I understand. Is this technically London, or are we in yeah. Ireland or Scotland? Welcome or to Docklands. No, it's, yeah. it's London, all the way to the coast. All the way to the coast. All the way down. Well, we're here. Uh, this is just sort of the. Uh, End of the second day here at NDC Oslo. Well, second day for us. There were workshops, but yeah. And uh, like all the times that we come to these things, we do a panel discussion in front of a live studio audience, who's awesome. <laughs> we love it, Richard. Yes, you're here. I am here. You're here too. What have you been doing all day? I've been recording shows. What have you been doing all day? <laughs> I guess I have been too. <laughs> uh, and we've been talking a lot about um, microservices lately on the show. We've been talking about Docker and containers and all that kind of stuff. And well, I guess we want to just put everybody we've been talking to together and see what happens. So we're throwing the time bomb out there. Uh, but before we do that, we have this little thing that we call. Better know a framework. So roll the funky music. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I went. I you know I look for things that are trending, yep. and uh, this is one of them. It's called idonethis.com. Nice. I, you done it. <laughs> you done done. <laughs> you done it. All right. <laughs> you done hired the hitmaker. That's right. the reference you're making. Yeah. Right? Well, I done this is a service where you reply to an evening email reminder that you get from it with what you did that day. Okay. And the next day you get a digest with what everyone on the team got done. Now, I know this is like a service that really costs like five bucks a month per user, but it's not that I'm giving them a plug. I'm saying it's not a bad idea. I mean, you know, doing a sort of an email digest is something that we could probably all do just on a Saturday while watching TV. Yeah. But uh, so it is a pretty cool idea. And I don't know if anybody else has something like this or has written something or used something like this, but I thought it was pretty compelling. So that's why I brought it up. That's I've done cool. Love it. Who's talking to us, my friend? I grabbed a comment off of show 1125, the one we did with Seth Locker back when we were in Nebraska, talking about Docker for developers. I think it was one of the early uh, Docker conversations we had, too, Mm because he was very much a Linux guy. Right. So rather than, you know, he didn't have any of the issues around Windows and things with it, so we were coming at it from a Linux perspective. But some of the comments on this were super awesome. Uh, And Johan Obrink gave us this great comment. This is about from nine months ago or so when the show first came out. He said, in the show, you mentioned the lack of good tooling for managing the deployment of Docker containers across virtual machines. We recently started using Tutum, 
Tutum. That's T-U-T-U-M dot C-O. It allows us to manage containers, private Docker hosts, and cloud providers so that containers can be provisioned across Azure, DigitalOcean, AWS, and more. Hmm. By the way, I've gone and taken a look at Tutum. It's currently free under preview, and it really does a lot of stuff for you in terms of just managing containers symmetrically. It doesn't matter what platform you're working from. Cool. The containers all perceive it as if they were on the same local network, which makes setting up redundancy really easy. Hmm. Elasticsearch, for example, will automatically distribute all indexes across all machines, not being aware, of course, that it could be across literally multiple cloud hosts yeah, yeah. if you want them to be. Right. Uh, we can also select the best cloud for each service. DigitalOcean for disk-intensive operations is to use SSDs. AWS if we want to use data from S3 and so on, hmm. while providing fallbacks if a cloud provider could go down. Hmm. Could that ever happen? Never. That would never happen. Never. <laughs> <laughs> That's just crazy. We don't go down. Anyway, I thought it was a, a great comment. Johan, thanks so much for providing that comment. I will take a good long look at Tutum. I hope others do as well, especially while it's in preview. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. If you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media platforms. We post every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you write a comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And what's the date on that uh, comment? That comment is from nine months ago. So it was probably right after that show got published, yeah. which was April of 2015. Yeah, I just wanted to keep that in mind as we talk to the panel today and see what yeah. they think of that. Uh, and I guess that means we need the panel to introduce themselves. Let's start way down at the end there. Ben Hall, why don't you tell us, everybody, what you do? Cool. So I'm the founder of a company called Ocelot Upwar. We're a software development studio. So we help companies deliver training sessions so on topics such as Docker. And we also build our own internal products, one of which is Catacoda, which is an interactive learning platform for software engineers. So you can learn things like uh, Docker in your browser without any downloads or configuration. And Ocelot Uproar is a sophisticated code word for pussy riot. Right? <laughs> completely, completely. Yeah. For those who haven't watched Archer, as we discussed this morning. <laughs> okay, Mark, you're up. I'm uh, Mark Rendell, and I'm a professional podcast guest. <laughs> <laughs> and you are, among other things. Shouldn't you say the word Docker? Just to I say should probably it? say Cloudlands, shouldn't I? I'm working <laughs> on. So I've been running something called Zudio, which is a terrible name. Uh, so now I'm working on something called Cloudlens, which is basically the next version of that, uh, which is ASP.NET 5 and Docker and Azure and yeah. all those good things. Um, yeah, you have, an Im- you have an impressive uh, setup there that we talked about on our last show. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm still, I'm just about to actually put it live in beta. Wow. Awesome. Michelle. I'm Michelle LaRouste-Monte. I have a consulting company called Salliance. We do a lot of uh, migration to cloud, focus on distributed architectures, uh, now microservices, previously other things, uh, and uh, spending a lot of time with Service Fabric, Docker, and uh, I had to say Docker, 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 Docker. 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 And uh, I have a product called Snapboard that I'm actually also deploying to a microservice platform. Wow. That, uh, yeah, wow. See, yeah, he's yeah. surprised. Why is he surprised? I don't know. Um, thank you. Nice. All right. Well, who wants to go first? I mean, uh, first of all, any reactions to that nine-month-old uh, uh, suggestion about managing uh, containers? Well, yeah. Um, to some people, it might sound surprising that <coughs> Tutum is still in beta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> once you immerse yourself in the Docker ecosystem, nine months is really not a very long time. Um, but no, I, have, I looked at Tutum. Uh, and they they appear to provide a 
a very good hosted service if you want someone to manage that infrastructure side of things for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there are uh, open source tools that do roughly the same set of stuff, but that you have to kind of provide the infrastructure to run the the servers for that sort of thing yourself. Right. Like 500 um, different ones. And there are 500 different ones. I mean, I'm for CloudLens, I'm using one called Rancher, uh, which is very nice. Uh, and is they release, they do a new release once a week. Um, and they just broke their version numbering because it was based on weak numbers. Uh, <laughs> and so now, now we've gone back to one again. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, they're... they're that's a great product. Um, that does a similar thing. Uh, I can run one kind of master server in the Azure North Europe data center, and I could run it in, in Amazon or DigitalOcean. Uh, and then I can run uh, nodes in all the Azure data centers, which is something that I have to do. Uh, but as far as they're concerned, they are all a single network. It does IPsec tunneling between things. Uh, and I can do a push to the Docker registry, and 19 data centers will all update themselves with that new image wow. just automatically. I can I just have that set up as a hook in Rancher to do that. Uh, so that's what I'm using. Um, I'm sure that I, I think Ben wrote his own thing. Of Probably. Course. Of course he did. Because he's the mindset yeah. of the container ecosystem. And did you write it in Go? Yeah, a little, <laughs> little bit. Okay. Little bit. Then it's fine. It's proper Docker. A little bit. <laughs> it's not proper Docker unless it's written in, in Go, Go or maybe Python. We didn't. Uh, we talked to you today, Ben, and of course the show was published weeks ago because <laughs> time shifting. Yeah, yes. of course. And uh, I don't know if Tutum was one thing that you mentioned, but uh, no. So Docker Tutum's just been acquired by Docker, so they've now bought it in house and brought it into part of the team. And Docker. They have Tutum. They also have a control plane offering, um, which is more for on-premise and in-house offerings. And I think that's where they're positioning it, with Tutum being focused on the cloud. Um, and they're both very cool, but there's so much activity. Like Rancher, for example, is also a great company and a great product. There's huge amounts to be aware of, and it's hard to keep track and know what's best mm. um, to actually solve your problem. We re- developed our own because uh, we have we don't have the same problems as what most scalability companies do. And we've got... You are a special, not, special flower. It's not a traditional saying? website okay. um, problem. Right. Um, because we're not just scaling traffic. We're building and delivering virtual machines and environments. And so that's why we decided to use the API directly, which it's very powerful. It's very right. strong. There's got some great wrappers. Um, but for most problems, I'd recommend going to something like Rancher or Kubernetes. Or beyond, right. Or, yeah, exactly. A lot of it depends on... So there are companies, different companies at different stages have different problems. Uh, So, I mean, Google made Kubernetes to solve Google's problem. And Google's problem is we need to marshal millions of CPUs and servers and get them all to work as though they were one thing. And we'd rather not employ 100,000 people to do that. Um, My problem is I would like to run as few servers as possible to keep my costs down. And so uh, Rancher works well at that, and it sort of scales up to this level. Uh, Kubernetes, Mesosphere, things like these schedulers are designed for when you're just throwing huge amounts of processing power and and money 
at uh, getting things done as quickly as possible and as easily as possible. But but only so far easily, right? Because it's not really a pass. It's still, you have to manage it, you have to throw resources at it until you get to the point where you go to a hosted provider. Yeah. And that's the interesting part because I probably deal with a lot of customers that are looking to move to microservices and not have to do all the work. So when while they're interested in some of the lower level, um, they're more interested in throwing money at that problem within the services space. Um, and, and, and a big part of that is just because they don't have the people that know this stuff yet. Yeah. And so it's too much of a challenge to undertake to try to, to, to think, you know, we can think design, we can think microservice, we can think, you know, building uh, containers and distributing them. We understand the networking, we understand all of that stuff, but we want somebody else to... Um, make sure it's up, it's healthy, it, you know, you know, recovers, it gives us information about the state of the whole system and so on. So it's an interesting problem, right? Mm. Because there's so many layers. And then when you're a developer, you just want to do stuff. So it's kind of fun. And uh, it's a cultural difference, I see. And I brought this up with, with you, Michelle, and I also brought it up with you, Ben, today, which is that, you know, in the Linux world, there's all the, the, the focus is on control, you know, we want all the control we can get, so therefore we need to know the stack all the way up and down, and, and uh, when something doesn't work, we can swap it out. We like having that low-level control at the expense of, uh, you know, the, the time that it takes to get up and running, the expertise, as Michelle was saying, versus in the, in the Azure world, in the service fabric world, you know, all, the, all of that stuff is sort of just handed to you with a remote control, so to speak. Yeah. You know, so there's a there's a I guess it's a difference in culture. Well, some of it comes from if you think about just culture and history. I remember you know back in the day when I was doing mostly dot you know pre dot net C plus plus development, and then I took a hop over to the you know the Java space, Java, Oracle, Linux, uh, Unix, really, uh, and building a PaaS operation based on that stack. Now I wasn't obviously managing all of the operations without help because I was new to that space, but I was responsible for it. And what I learned is that it's a rite of passage. You know, I mean, I'm not saying everybody's like that, but it does feel a lot like there's just a raw sort of, um, I don't want to even say youthful approach, but this sort of feels a little bit like that. You know, like I just want to dig in and do stuff and get things done and figure it out. And that sort of mantra felt very strong back in the day in the Java time frame, uh, in that time frame for me in, in working with Java. Um, maybe I'm just saying that because nobody wanted to help me when I went on the list. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, because like when you go to the .NET space, you, you, you would see immediately there's like five, you know, five, 10, 15 different magazines with people writing articles and all these resources, everyone else is like, yeah, figure it out, dude. Right. You know, read the manual. Um, call yeah. me when you're, you know, digging into the low level, I want to edit your bits that are deployed on GitHub, you know, and then I'll talk to you. Um, and Mark, so, you have a foot, one yeah. foot in each side of this uh, camp. I mean, what, yeah. you've noticed that cultural difference, I, I take it. Certainly moving to, well, I'm running Linux on my actual work laptop. Uh, is that a self-loathing thing? Is that what you <laughs> No, no. Really? Do you know the funny you thing? You with God. Virtual uh, box. <laughs> I, I don't have enough. Uh, my laptop is old and dual core and eight gigs of RAM, and it really isn't up to running uh, but Windows But that's a ton 10. of power for most Linux instances. Like. Uh, it is, but when you're running uh, 12 Docker containers to Ooh. spin up your kind of microservice cluster that represents your site. Now you're just um, showing off. And you're doing, that in, <laughs> you're doing that in VirtualBox and controlling it from Windows. Yeah. It, it sort of, it flakes pretty quickly, whereas you do it 
if you've actually booted directly into Linux, right. and it's using like a quarter of one CPU to do that, yeah. uh, which is good, because it means that the, all the other CPUs and all the rest of the memory is there to open an extra tab in Chrome. Uh. <laughs> 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 so true. Not that he's no, angry or anything. No, <laughs> not at all. But it is funny, you'd, uh, I... I know exactly what Michelle's talking about. You go if you have a problem with Windows, you can go on to Server Fault mm-hmm. um, or Stack Overflow, and you can find the answer to that question there. If you have a problem with Linux, then the answer will be 18 levels of greater than indentation deep in a Piper mailing yep. list entry from 2009, yeah. which is telling you to go and edit slash etc slash something dot d slash something dot conf. And you're supposed to know where that fi- is. Yeah, you've got to find that. <laughs> which was written by um, a 13-year-old brainiac, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. It was written by one of the kernel maintainers, and you've got to do this on a machine that's running in, in a cloud and you've only got SSH access to it. So you log in, and then whoever created the cloud image didn't put your editor on there, so you're having to use Nano or Pico or something to, to edit the file, and you've got no idea how that works. And you are just going, I really miss RDP at this point. I would <laughs> like to be able to log in and get a desktop. There's nothing wrong with Nano. Nano's good. It's, it's solid. It's, and it's easy. Yeah, but you like breakfast burritos. Okay, <laughs> okay good point. Good point. Yeah. I'll give you that. I wish I could drop this mic. Yeah. <laughs> you have to whack your head on the table. <laughs> it's right on your head. They can probably add it in at the sound yeah, effect yeah. later. Okay. Yeah. We, could, we could do all of those things, actually. You could fake it. Just tap the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like we've spent a good 15 minutes just talking about the container side of this. We're also supposed to talk about the microservice side of this whole oh, yeah. discussion, just as a new model of, of uh, building applications. Are they really that different from good old SOA? Yeah. Mm. No, it's the same stuff. Well, WCF no, it's, for it's, microservices. It's an evolution. It's an evolution okay. of that mantra. It's an evolution of those principles, but done in a in a way that sort of evolves to additional principles, right? So the whole I, I like to look at it like, um, you know, everybody hates buzzwords. You hear microservice and you want to kill yourself now because it's everywhere. Or Martin Fowler. Um, right. <laughs> or, 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 or a number of people. Um, oh, I wouldn't include you in that. It's okay. <laughs> That's, fine. Um, That's fine. But, but you know, you, you, you hear it all the time, but what, what really is important is, is really the underlying change in how people will approach building systems. And mm. you might argue that it's forcing people to do things better because mm-hmm. it forces you to think about up front, why don't we actually think about the domain? Why don't we actually break up the services so it's manageable to deploy an update? It makes so much logical sense that you cannot deploy monolithic things. And and we used to think of monolithic things as a single executable, but I see websites with, you know, maybe five, six, seven different API endpoints, but each of those has so many assemblies and so many crossing waves of shared code, and then the database is just this one monolith, monolith yeah. and it's literally impossible to update that. It's literally fearful to update that. And so it makes a lot of sense to change how we think. Now, how far you go micro... Uh, is, is completely dependent on the kind of thing you're building and, and, and where you want to mm. get to. But, you know, the principles are solid and it helps you to think that through, I think. So do you remember sort of, yeah. I mean, five years ago, our friend Duval Lowy 
Uh, every class is a service. Every class, class should be a service. This was right. his mantra, Javal No, it's Lowy. true. It's and true. was he right? And he said that before microservices, the term was, or I it's think, really round. yeah. Well, founded. you know, and I, I brought this up with Ben today, which is, uh, it's not that uh, the class is the boundary. It's the the what it's doing. You know, the 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 domain job. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's not a class, right? Like, it, you know, every service is not a microservice, but every microservice is a service. Okay. You still have to think in domains. There might be a single thing that is just a cache, Redis, and that's mm-hmm. a service with, you know, data. Mm-hmm. And then there may be a single thing that is, you know, just an identity server with data. Um, but that single identity server might have three APIs, three services sure. within the construct of that holistic But you really want everything area. to do with identity in that But service. all that is updated together. All that is a unit of thinking as a team to, can we deploy this and not affect the rest of all of our products that depend on it? You know, that kind of thing. So you, you have to get out of the, the thought of every service equals microservice, every API equals a microservice, because that's too granular for a lot of things, right? You still have crossing database relations that need to be somehow collected under maybe several APIs, but grouped together and hopefully safely separated from others like it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I wrote a blog post about uh, Microsoft, well, I wrote a series of blog posts because I made my New Year's resolution that I was going to blog post, uh, write a post every day. Um, so I wrote three That's blog ambitious. posts. That's ambitious. No so matter I, I, what. It lasted three days. Um, <laughs> good work. Yeah. yeah. Sweet. That's that good. was, awesome. that was uh, lasted much longer than my diet. I'm going to open a gym called, Resol- <laughs> called Resolutions, and for the first two weeks, it's going to be a gym, and then it's going to turn into a bar for the rest That's of the year. Great. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I'll sign for that. Um, but no, I, I wrote a post saying do one thing and do it well, uh, which was born out of frustration with uh, the Azure SDK, the Azure Storage SDK, which has got so complicated over the yeah. years and talks to Key Vault and talks to all these different things. Mm. And I was just kind of like, why don't you break it out? Because all I want to do is upload a blob. Right. So get the bit that does blobs and release an Azure blob SDK and an Azure whatever SDK. And I don't mind if each of those SDKs has a dependency on a core package, but you could fix the bug in the blob SDK without us having to wait for Key Vault to release a .NET core version of that. Anyway, mm-hmm. and then I sort of took this a step further and said microservices, and I said, do one thing with microservices. And I gave an example from my project where... I actually use a microservice to do JWT verification. So JSON Web Tokens. Mm-hmm. Uh, JSON Web Token, you've got three parts. Uh, the first bit is a Base64 encoded metadata about the token. And then in the middle, you've got a Base64 encoded JSON string, uh, which is all your claims. And then the last bit is a hash created using a private key um, nice. of that middle bit so that you can't change the token. So the token has to have, you know, it's been issued by your um, authenticated server. Um, And you can write libraries for this and all this sort of stuff, but I've got, you know, multiple containers running on the same machine. And so my ASP.NET 5 authentication process just bounces that as a string across to this microservice, which has got two endpoints, uh, and it's got verify. And if it's okay then it gives you back the JSON of the claims, which you can then put into your claims principle. And if it's not, it bounces back a 403. 
uh, saying that's not that's not right. Mm. And I'm sure that someone in the audience, hello, um, will tell me that 403 is the wrong status code for that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, people were going that you know. That is, it's a class, and it's a method call on a class to, to verify a JSON web token. Right. Why would you do that? Why would you split that out into a microservice? That's just stupid. And so I had to write another blog post to prove how clever I am, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> where I said, okay, at the moment, I've got an X509 certificate that I'm using to verify this thing, and uh, that gets into the microservice in this way. But I might decide to change that and use Azure Key Vault and pass the thing across to there, because that has an API which you can pass a string and it sends so you back the So it's an hatch. adapter, And so it is, it's essentially, it's a replaceable, instead of doing dependency injection, I can do a, use a different container with a different service inside it with the same API, and I can switch around. If I've got some services running in Azure and I want to use Azure Key Vault, and I've got some services running in uh, AWS and I want to use their Key Vault, or I want to use uh, HashiCore's Vault uh, tool, which is extremely good as well, I I can switch these things out without having to recompile every single service just because I've changed the way I'm doing JWT generation and authentication. That's a perfect example of why you should be decomposing things into microservices. But it raises something interesting, which is the security issues around going microservices beyond the obvious stuff that people worry about with multi-tenancy and, you know, container segregation and networking and so on, isolation. But it, it actually comes back to if you think about services, boundaries, as something that always must be authenticated and authorized in some way, and if you adopt the modern topology for identity and authorization, which would be token-based across all the tiers, then now we have possibly more hops than we used to if we're doing composition that goes deep that need to be authorized, that now need token validation. Where's Dominic? Is Dominic here? No. 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 He's probably doing a talk. Um, but 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 see, this is the issue, though, is that you know there's overhead with that. It's not too much in a traditional environment where you maybe only have two hops for the round trip from the yeah. top down. But the question is, how much is too much? I don't know that we can answer that question right no. now. I mean, I think that perhaps the methodologies around how we protect things that are you know behind a network might have to change. But token-based is how we deal with it today because we're standardizing on APIs, which have traditionally less hops before you get back to the, to the front. We start breaking things out smaller and have more hops and more token validations. Now we're going to have to start benchmarking what's the right approach. Is it okay to say, well, this is in a private network and there's zero chance, but but see, the security person in me says, no, you can't ever say that this might not be exposed, and if you don't protect it at the software level, then somebody exposes it and now you're screwed. So, not okay. So, there's there's a lot to think about there, right? Yeah. It's it's a design issue, and it's a performance, potentially, you know, uh, you know performance-based concern. Yeah. Um, but it could evolve to maybe different types of validation, perhaps. Maybe yeah. it's not going to be asymmetric. Maybe it's got to be symmetric, and we go back to HMAC or something like that. Just something, so. But, yeah. I mean, and to, to the example of, hello, can you verify this token for me? And, yes, I've done that. So obviously, you want to do that over IPsec tunneling, um, and you want to do the token server 
uh, can't be on any kind of public IP address. It has to be on an internal-only IP address. Um, uh, but yes, as soon as you get into things where you've got a big fabric of uh, 32 hosts and messages are bouncing around all over it, and so that's now hitting the real network rather than just an internal Docker bridge, then yeah, you've got uh, another set of issues. Um, so at which point I would say, okay, so now we need to solve that problem as well. <laughs> yeah. But if I ever get to the point where I'm running 32 servers in every data center, I'll just pay someone to solve that problem for <laughs> me. Somebody smarter. It's yes. a good one. Um, I'll, I'll pay Troy to come and sort it out for nice. me. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time It's again. time to announce that I have no joke today. <laughs> Everybody's very excited about that. Oh, man. Rough. Rough crowd. It's, <laughs> it's actually time to uh, give away a Component One studio to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. First, let me tell you about Grape City Active Reports, the first product we ever advertised on .NET yeah, Rocks. Yeah, that's a long time ago, my friend. Yeah, this is the reporting platform for all your business needs. Design, publish, view, print, and export operational reports such as invoices, expense reports, tax, and government forms as well as strategic and analytical reports such as sales performance, budgeting, and revenue analysis. Active Reports gives you the operation and flexibility you need to turn your data into informative, pixel-perfect reports across the enterprise. Nice. So who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is George Britton. Congratulations, George. You get a real clap, not just a golf clap. Real clap for you, sir. Yes, indeed. George just won the Component One studio from Component One in Grape City. And uh, if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, an army of members, in fact. Mm. And uh, every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you've got to sign up to win. We've done it four times already. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we also like to ask our guests, guys, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy? Michelle. Oh, come on. She just did this earlier today. I just did this earlier today. <laughs> We've been through else. this. I've got to think about it. New toys. New toys. More toys. There's so many. Mm. So many toys. I want a recording studio Do you in, really? my, wow, in, my, cool. in my in uh, my office. Okay, yeah. go to soundsuckers.com. Okay, and you could get that a sounds four, promising. Yeah, you get a four by six isolation booth for five grand. Perfect. There you go. Oh my god, I hit the five grand for a change. <laughs> well done. I'm normally way under. Do when do I pick it up? <laughs> uh, Mark. HoloLens Developer Kit and a Dell Precision 5000. That was easy. Yeah, yeah. boom. That's, a, that's over done. five grand, actually. Yeah. But depending on how you configure the Dell Precision, you can... I, I, if I don't pay Dell for the extra memory and I go and buy it from Crucial, then yeah, I can keep it, that's I better. think, down under the two... Under, yeah, yeah, it'll be close. It's done homework. Um, yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, mainly the HoloLens Dev Kit, though. 3000 bucks like, US, yeah. risk like that's, that. That's, that's if that's they feel on. like giving, to, giving yeah. it to you. Have you tried to fill in the form for the HoloLens Dev Kit? No. They ask very specific questions. Yeah, like, are you in the U.S. or Canada? <laughs> oh. Well, that's it. That's, they begin there, but they're very keen on, you okay. have apps in the wild built in Unity. Like, yeah. that's sort of their, their barrier to entry. 
I, I downloaded Unity. Does there that count? That, that will always count. I've got a book. I played Kerbal Space Program. Right? program. Yeah. That's Unity. I, 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 I got a book. I haven't read it. I've <laughs> tried putting it under my pillow to see if I absorb the knowledge. See if it goes straight through. Yeah. I made the little bar go around the screen. <laughs> I have a game I want to write, but mm-hmm. um, not for HoloLens. I mean, I want to do the HoloLens thing where you uh, draw in your route on a map. Right. And then put your HoloLens on and go out for a run and it puts coins <laughs> along, the, along your route and you just run along and every time you run past a coin it goes bing there's a problem there's a problem with that doesn't work outside I know but yeah, you know sorry for just version one future version that'll be fine yeah Mark's, you, you Mark's have a lot of head. time on your hands hun <laughs> I wish I did because then I could actually do this stuff so. Ben I'd, what would you buy with five grand um, so I was looking at Seb's um, new massive iPad and that looks pretty cool. Hold that thing up, Seb. Seb? Is that the iPad? That's crap. the giant iPad. Yeah. The iPad that thinks it's a surface. Wow. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> comes it's with, actually, the comes thing with is, its own $500 pen. If you see that in the shop next to the iPad Air, it is two iPad Airs yeah. stuck wow. together. <laughs> it is literally twice as much wow. screen. It's gigantic. It's huge. And it's running iOS, which is just a complete waste of all that processing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I appreciate Apple equipment is expensive, but I don't think that's five grand. Oh, here's when you had a HoloLens. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we got some questions from the audience. This is from Ollie. Uh, How would you fix the performance outliers in microservices, which are a standard problem? Are you talking about the... Uh, are you talking about the um, number of hops per se? Like in terms of distributing densely across the nodes, that's, I mean, additional availability. It's, it's, so what are you referring uh, to? It's introducing more uh, opportunities for partition. Um, ah, partitioning. And for a service to go down. And therefore, all the other services that depend... See, I really want to give the facetious mm. answer that if you take a service that's three nines... Can, can you just repeat the question for us? The, the question was, if you've got a service that's uh, three nines um, and you break that down into two services... Three nines, Three nines, as in 99.9% uptime, uptime. Yeah, SLA. Availability. Um, and you split that into two services, uh, then have you introduced... You know, do you now have... You now double uh, the risk a, of downtime. A 99.8, yeah. or have you got um, six nines? Yeah. yeah. Uh, which, no, you haven't got six nines. Um, if, you, if you split down into 15, have you got an infinite number of nines? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, no, so you do, uh, if you need that kind of uptime availability, then obviously you have uh, at least three instances of each service. And this is what schedulers like Kubernetes and Mesosphere and Fleet uh, are for, is really, really just kind of maniacal, pathological monitoring to say, I need at least this many instances of this service running. Um, And then the other thing that you need to work out is how the communication between those services happens. Because you can do microservices that talk HTTP to each other. You can do microservices that talk native TCP protocols like Protobuf and whatever. And you can do microservices that talk over a distributed bus like 0MQ or Kafka. Um, And at that point, you know, you just have to hope Kafka doesn't go down, because <laughs> if Kafka goes down, then you're down for days. Um, 
but yeah, you know, uh, this is really more of a philosophical a, argument about how reliability works. Yes, and probability yeah, as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, right? yeah, um, I mean, that's an element of it. You can play that math game if you want. Probability is not cumulative, right? right. Yeah. That's, that's, you have a 50-50 chance of flipping heads or tails every time you flip. Yeah, it no doesn't matter, matter if you hit, times. flip 10 heads in a row. Yeah. Right. You still have a 50-50 chance of um, heads the, the 11th time. Right. The but you still have to deal with the same issues we talked about earlier, which is I don't care if it's a microservice or an API today. You have to you know, build resiliency into your application. You have to have retries and back off retries at every single node that you call. And redundant. And you have to have redundancy and failover capabilities in place. Mm -hmm. And you know, th this is how we should already, and, and I think aspire to, design systems today without microservices. When you have microservices, you are just more acutely aware, I think, of this fragility. Yeah. Well, then this is where you get into the philosophical element. You either build one monolithic thing that never goes down no matter what, or you build a whole bunch of things that when they go down, you don't care. Yeah. Because the service isn't actually down. The, right. the, the analogy that's just popped into my head is if you've got an aircraft carrier and it gets a hole in it, then the whole thing sinks, probably. Right. And, and everybody drowns. Whereas if you've got... Uh, 50,000 rowing boats yep. and one of them gets a hole in it then one rowing boat goes down and probably the people who were in it can climb into one of the other rowing boats yes. yeah but you should see the so, gun on yeah. those rowing boats <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man. Um, particularly if you build those rowing boats from six inch thick steel yeah. uh, that you got then, off the yeah, aircraft yeah. here you yeah. took apart <laughs> but, yeah um, yeah. you know yeah. so yes you, in, you introduce the possibility there are more things that uh, could disappear, mm. but at the same time, each of those things has fewer moving parts. Uh, okay, and we'll, we'll move so on to another. fewer vulnerabilities. We'll move sure. on to the next question. This is from Tom. How do databases work well with microservices? Micro databases. Nice. Yeah. Why not? Um, if you're breaking down your application, like we were talking earlier on about the fact that what was a bounded context has now become a microservice. Um, if you can separate your business model and your logic out into those things uh, and create those boundaries, then why would you want to ruin that all by putting all the data in the same Oracle database? Um, right. You mm -hmm. And, and you, you give yourself the possibility to go, right, the financial data obviously needs to be in an ACID-compliant transactional database replicated across multiple nodes and backed up every night. So, you know, Azure SQL database or Oracle, if you hate yourself and like employing DBAs. <laughs> um, so true, though. You're never sponsored by Oracle, are you? Not anymore, anyway. There's the Oracle licensing model. How much money have you got? Yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and for no, the privilege of updates, we will take X a year, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. And, and if you have no money, you can have MySQL, which will teach you to have no money. <laughs> um, Postgres people, come on. Uh, but yes, you can kind of go, right, so this goes into this. It's the same, you know, with microservices, one of the awesome things about microservices, you can go, you know what, That's, there's a really nice node library for doing that. There's a really nice Go library for doing that. There's a brilliant Python library for doing this kind of machine learning-y sort of thing. Yeah. And so you use the right tool for the right part of your service. And it's the same with your data. You can have, you know, uh, 
Some stuff needs to go in a SQL database. Some stuff can go in a document database. Some stuff can go in a wide value right. column store, like table storage and, and or paraphrasing from Ben from your show earlier, uh, you do want all that stuff to be stored outside of the container in something a little more durable than any oh, given yeah. container. And the, when I put my IT hat on, it, that doesn't preclude reliability, backup, like all of those things. Just because you have stuff stored in different locations in different ways doesn't mean it isn't still valuable to the organization and needs care and feeding. It doesn't Absolutely. have to be a DBA. It just has to be somebody anal about files. Yeah. Or the last guy standing next to the database when the last guy left. That's right. <laughs> you. You're it. <laughs> I think the other model that is introduced, though, is the partitioning model. For example, I like what uh, Service Fabric is doing around partitioning. The idea of partition early um, because they'll handle it. So, you know, you think A to Z or you think, you know, one through 100 partitions based on whatever it is, countries, states, uh, you know, last names, whatever the case may be. You break it up as far as you can up front and then you let them handle saying, oh, well, you only need two servers, so we'll just distribute across the two or three in the cluster. But now when it's time to, you know, spread out, you've already done the job. And in the meantime, they have a naming service that can go ahead and do the queries and find the right partition. So it's done right up front. And that's the right way to do partitioning. It's just that it forces us to think too early about that. But when you start thinking in micro, you can start thinking in micro around that as well. Mm -hmm. And now it becomes a little bit more manageable. Everything becomes manageable. The part that feels nerve wracking is the potential of the chaos monkey in the middle because there's so many moving parts now. So now we do the better job around the moving parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. I, I also want to talk, I, I find that relatively few people think about partitioning uh, chronologically. Like, as a guy who built a lot of e-commerce sites, like, keeping more than the last seven days of data in the very fast data store is yeah. dumb, right? Like, it's just no reason. The data's not going to change. It's journal. Aggregate and archive. Yeah, get it out of there. Get it out of there often. Give, it can't be one day because there are reconciliations, but it only needs to be a few days. And if you just get into this habit right at the beginning of we have a rolling window of time and then every, when, when the arbitrary definition of a month ends, then we pull that off and do things with it. But mm -hmm. the vast majority of that data never, ever, ever, ever changes. Put it in a read-only state and you'll turn out it performs awesome when nobody's allowed to modify it. All right, we, actually, we only have a few minutes, so I really want to get to this, some of these other questions here. Uh, is there a Windows, and this is from Ian, is there a Windows story on microservices for those of us who have avoided Linux thus far and quite like it that way? Michelle, <laughs> I think that's your, your uh Well, there, there is a in-progress version of that. So we have uh, Windows Server 2016 Tech Preview 3. Say that fast five times, I dare you. Um, and that is a, a Docker-ready uh, version of Windows, and then there's Nano Server. Um, it's just that it's young, right? So the tooling right now, we have Docker uh, CLI that we can use, and we can you know, build a Docker file and build images and target either Hyper-V for on-prem or in the cloud we can do Windows Container. Um, but we don't, and we now have a Swarm equivalent, but again, it's, it's evolving, right? So w that's not released. But there will come a time when that now has all of the story. And there, you know, with the partnership between, I think, Microsoft, Mesosphere, and Docker, I think that is what's going to start fleshing that story out very nicely. But and also the service fabric is another alternative Service fabric to would this. be the, yeah, it would be the PaaS way to go. That is, you know, you are 
accustomed to building .NET code solutions. You build a Visual Studio solution, and like we did with cloud services when it first came out, Azure uh, initially had a PaaS offering called Cloud Service before we had websites. And the cloud service uh, model is very similar to what we see, only now it's much improved with lots of other things, the service fabric model, which is you have a, a, a project file, which is a first-class citizen. It is an application. That application is a thing that you can deploy. It publishes to a cluster. It does it on-prem, and then you publish it to your cloud cluster in the same way. And all the moving parts of the partitions and the actors and the reliable collections and all the things you built, web apps, APIs, gets deployed together and you don't need to care where did it go on that cluster but you have visuals around seeing where things are so it's it's very paths in some, in in a lot of respects right so all right uh, Liam Wesley has a comment here micro databases uber drivers have a micro database syncing to the data centers eventually model would work in microservices in other words keep it local until you know once a day or whatever you sync up all right uh, Callie says how do you instrument a microservice-based application, are there any good tools? So we use the same tools what we would for any normal application. Um, so um, a lot of our logs go into Logstash and Kibana and tooling like that, which is great, and everything wins in the container, so that's good. Um, mm -hmm. And then for metrics, um, we go into StatsD and push it up to there. And we also have, um, we store a lot just in SQLite. So it's very okay. simple, it's very clean. Um, and then if we need to find performance information or more detailed logging, then it's a, just another data source that we have that we can start analyzing and pulling metrics out. But from my point of view and what we've refactored, it doesn't change just because it's a microservice. Sure enough. One of the nice things you can do uh, with things like StatsD, uh, FluentD, which is a kind of log it grabs logs from lots of different places and then pushes them to different places. Uh, Mozilla have a brilliant thing called Heka, H-E-K-A, um, which does a similar thing, but has filters and Lua scripting and so forth. But you, have, you can have a container, uh, a Docker container that spins up and you tell it how to talk to Docker. And then it says to Docker, tell me the other containers that are running and tell me when a container gets launched and tell me when a container stops running and automatically attaches to those other containers and pulls standard out and standard error and everything. Um, and so you don't have to worry about configuration files and all this. Sort of, you can just literally drop a, a copy of this container onto every single one of your hosts and it just pulls the data from these places and then pushes it into Elasticsearch or Prometheus, Grafana, Graphite. Um, it's, it's amazing stuff. I mean, obviously not for the guy who doesn't want to run Linux, but um, right. he's got performance counters, so good luck to him. <laughs> Mark, uh, last time we talked last year, you told us about your deployment, continuous deployment and integration and build and... Yeah, uh, everything that you, it, it sounded like the biggest Rube Goldberg thing I've ever seen in my life. But uh, it sounded more like being on the Star Trek Enterprise bridge. That, uh, and I just want to know, like, how many tools and uh, processes go into it, estimate? How many do you have working together in concert? If, if it's like Star Trek at all, it's like um, the first Contact film. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm basically that guy who's like supposed to be building warp drive but keeps getting drunk um, <laughs> so hang on what do I, so I've got uh, I've got a GitHub repository 
or a bunch of GitHub repositories, and I push into those. That triggers a webhook, which goes off to a Python Flask service that's running on a T2 microservice in AWS. That pulls the doc, the Git thing, and checks to see which project. So I've got multiple projects. Let me just get a diagram going here. So I've got multiple microservices in a single GitHub repository because otherwise I have to pay them even more money. Bitbucket, Bitbucket, uh, <laughs> free. Okay. What's Bitbucket? A free alternative? No, it's an Atlassian <laughs> thing, and that, yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, the Python thing pulls it down, works out which projects have changed, uh, creates Docker containers, pushes those Docker containers to the Docker registry. I pay for 25 private repositories on the Docker registry. That then triggers another webhook, which triggers uh, a node application <laughs> um, running on another T2 microservice uh, in... Uh, no, hang on, that's on a, a, a small uh, Azure instance. Does it involve a fax this, machine? This, anyway. that, it it is. So That's this, a notification system. This okay. then uses the Azure um, resource management SDK to spin up another VM uh, and put all the Docker containers onto there. Then it runs a suite of automated tests against those. If those tests pass, then it sends a message to Rancher to say everything's fine, and then Rancher can tell all the nodes that I've got in my entire thing, it's okay to pull a new, the latest version of this image. Once it's running on all the different nodes, that then uh, triggers, so they update something in console. Once everything in console agrees, that triggers another thing which bounces back to Rancher again and says switch the load balancer over to the new copy of that service. So that's... Wow. <laughs> Impressive. 53 simple steps. Of course. <laughs> and, and not a Word document in sight. No, it's all in readme. <laughs> .md. It makes it much more acceptable and perfect. Uh, well, except for the bits that are in my head. Yes. So right. we, do it, we do it slightly differently. We, uh, <laughs> I'm really? Because yeah. really, I, thought, I thought I just followed the patterns. But yeah. You straight <laughs> best practices stuff there. Yeah. Now we just do a push, goes into Bitbucket because it's free, goes into Docker Hub, builds it, do a Docker Compose, deployed. Simple. Uh, four steps? How yeah. archaic. I know. Wow. People like you are killing open source. <laughs> All right. Well, we're, I think we're just about out of time, so I'd like to everybody give a round of applause to the panel. Michelle, Mark, Ben. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a
by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 